0: soul food. That's what we're studying. The things you need to know about your Bible. This is part 10, and we're continuing with this title, How God's Word Does Its Work. The text we've been studying is 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 17. So get a Bible. Thanks for joining us Sunday night. We're trying to keep the Sunday night habit, even while we aren't physically meeting together. So Uh, Get a Bible and let's study this text for a little while together. You have to jump into the middle of a pretty long sentence by Paul. 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 17. He talks about these, these, uh, the value of Timothy, this young pastor, following Paul's example in his passion and his ministry and his pursuit of God. Paul tells Timothy, follow my example and you'll be You'll be strong. It'll hold you up even, now you come into the text, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That would be the Old Testament scriptures. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So you see Paul's view of the whole Old Testament. All the sacrifices that God commanded pointing to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. So Paul says to Timothy, from childhood, 15, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, he's going to talk about, he mentioned the sacred writings. Now, he wants to talk about the sacred writings. 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Timothy, those, in his case, the 24 books of the Old Testament, that would be the Scriptures Timothy would have studied Paul has no hesitation to say these weren't just these scriptures aren't just uh, religious people giving you their thoughts about God or making mistakes about God. No. All those Old Testament scriptures they are breathed out by God. They come from God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, so there's that that edgy side to it too. For correction, for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So in our last teaching, we, we saw how Paul wanted to remind Timothy, he's a pastor, young albeit, but a pastor. And Paul wants to remind Timothy that there is still immense profit in the things he's learned in the Scriptures. Don't assume just because you've known something for a long time that you don't have to ponder it and apply it and think about it anymore. So spiritual damage, Paul would say to Timothy, is done more by neglect than by out-and-out rebellion, at least on the part of believing people. So Paul tells Timothy he doesn't need something new. He doesn't need something additional. He only needs to continue in the Scriptures that he was taught in our text. It says from childhood... And so as we jump ahead in this very passage, we find that the Scriptures, all by themselves, if they're faithfully studied, humbly, repentantly read and obeyed, that they are, apparently, absolutely adequate to make us into godly people. That's in the 17th verse. You, just, you can't do better than a promise like that. Jesus actually said the same thing in John 8, 31, 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you can't just start. You can't dabble. But if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. All sorts of people might consider themselves disciples, declare themselves. Jesus is interested in true disciples. You are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, all conditioned, if you abide in my word. You will know the truth. What happens when you know the truth from abiding in the word? Well, the truth will set you free. So today, we're going to start looking at the question, well, how do the scriptures do that? How do they do that in my life? How do they free my life from self-deception, bondage of sin and habit? Do the scriptures do that automatically for everyone? Everyone who owns a Bible? Is this an automatic process? And if not, what are the steps? So I think it's really a practical topic. Paul says there are essentially four essential steps in producing biblical change. And they're outlined in four phrases in verse 16. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for... And here's the four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Now, what we're going to do today is just look at the first one. Point number one, the Word of God is profitable for teaching. Uh, some of your translations might even have that word doctrine in it. Profitable for Doctrine. This is Paul's emphasis. He's, he's not talking so much about the manner of teaching as the, the content of the teaching. So, so the Word of God is it's the textbook, the curriculum for the godly life. If, if I'm going to know God at all, I must start with knowing His Word. Well, Pastor Dung, what about Jesus? Come to the Father through Jesus. And that's true. How do you know about Jesus? Where did you learn that he died on the cross for your sins? Where did you learn that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to the Father? Where did you read those words, no one comes to the Father but by me? I'll tell you where you got them all, right here. Right here. If you want to know God, you have to start with knowing his word. You, 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 probably you will know God no better than you know his word. And that's why teaching, I, I think at... There's a reason it comes right up front, number one in Paul's list. You, you can't follow what you don't know. You can't obey what you haven't learned. Take the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Do, do you know what Jesus says? Do you know all the commands of Jesus? Like it seems to be a really important topic. I can't obey what I haven't learned. If I don't know the Word really well, even if I want to follow Jesus, my life is going to be pulled in the direction of a million different opinions and ideas. Paul explains why knowing God is just so closely linked to knowing His Word. He does that in that 16th verse, 2 Timothy 3, 16, where he says all Scripture. it's It's breathed out by God. So so that whole idea is so important that the New Testament won't uh, just drop that idea and leave it alone. It's expanded and explained. Here's Peter's take on that same idea about Scripture being breathed out by God and why Paul says, start with the Word. Start with the teaching of the Word. Peter says, 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21, and we have something more sure. He's just been talking about his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus and Moses and Elijah. He was, he was right there. He saw it. He heard the voice from heaven, heard with his ears. This is my beloved son. Okay? So that's the experience Peter has in mind. So it's shocking that he says, and we, here's the Christians in the church now, we have something more sure. Then that? We have the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all. Know, here's what you have to understand. If you're going to learn the scriptures, the teaching, the content of the word, here's what you have to know about the words in this book. Know this first of all. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. These Old Testament prophets, when they say God said this and God commanded that and God spoke this, they aren't, they aren't just giving their own thoughts about God. Peter makes it very clear that everything they say, they got from God. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. They weren't just spinning out what they hoped were right ideas about God, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zechariah, Jeremiah, Amos, Obadiah, they were all carried along by the Holy Spirit when they spoke. You have to factor that in. So apart from the Word, we're left with nothing but human opinions. We have nothing else to teach at Cedarview Community Church. I can't speak for every church. We have nothing else to teach but, but this book. That's what we do in everything we do. Blast our children's ministries, building lives around scriptural truth. We're not just giving them little moral lessons, hoping they grow up to be nice people. It's, it's the book. It's teaching the book. If you're in a church that doesn't major on teaching the scriptures, I don't care how big it is and how fancy it is and how splashy it is. If you are in a church that isn't teaching the Scriptures, you're wasting your time. I saw a website. I I would never say where, but I just saw a website, another website promoting a brand-new church. You can predict where it was going. You know, another in a long line of churches. For those who have given up on traditional church. And the perils of organized religion. Everybody's down on organized religion. That's just the new fad. Among all the selling points were, quotes, a relaxed come-as-you-are atmosphere, great contemporary music, drama, and always, quote, a brief talk on relevant life topics. And, and suddenly, it, I mean, I was thinking about, you know, this study and this text. Without any conscious effort at all on my part, my mind was just flooded with the thought that given our deeply entrenched fallen nature and the natural bent of our culture under the spirit of the age to encourage a light view of sin, I just, you and I might not be able to survive on light talks. I mean, we just might really need a fresh zeal to systematically study the deep truths of God's Word. If your kids knew their college or university courses as well as you know the Scriptures, would you be happy with their grades? Never lose your zeal for the Word, knowing the Word, the teaching of the Word. We all know David was called a man after God's own heart. How did he get that way? Was he just born lucky, loved by God? What, what was it about David that shaped his heart in such a fashion? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess. He tells us. Psalm 119, verses 9 to 12. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And then he says, with, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. When he says, with my whole heart, I seek you, what, what does he mean? What, what kind of seeking is he talking about? Well, he tells us. 11, I have stored up your word. In my heart. This is not just some mystical subjective state David is talking about. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your, teach me your statutes. So that whole, that whole idea in that tenth verse where he says, with my whole heart, I seek you. You have to notice where those words are placed. They're placed right in the middle of his reference to Pouring over the Word, studying the Word, memorizing the Word, hiding it in his heart. That's how he sought God. When you want your life changed, know what to do first. When you think about having your life transformed, changed, you need to immediately ask, changed into what? What? What's going to be the standard? How will you know if your life is changing for the better? What expert will you listen to? Well, all scriptures is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching. Let me wrap up this way. Let me suggest, as best I know, some simple steps, Okay? Simple steps to receiving the most from your Bible, either in corporate settings or private devotional study. Here are simple steps to profiting from the reading of the Word. I think I have three or four of them. So A, to produce biblical change, I must give the Word adequate study time. And here's the important part. Adequate study time in proportion to the time I give to other pursuits. It's the second part of that sentence that matters most. You see, you're like me. Ideas don't just enter my mind. They all compete for space. So it's not enough just to say, yes, I read God's Word regularly. If if my study of the Word is even if it's daily, but if it's still insignificant when balanced with the concentration I apply to other things, then the Word isn't going to have the, the, the voting power in my life that it ought to have. Jesus actually talked about this a lot. Most clearly, probably, in Matthew 13, when he sums up the parable of the soil, how the Word lands on different hearts, and the kind of fruitfulness and how it varies. This idea that the word must be given adequate space in comparison to the other pursuits of my life, he deals with that in Matthew thirteen twenty-two. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who, who hears the word, listens to the sermon, reads the study, reads the book, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Those last words, it, it proves unfruitful. Wait a minute. I mean, isn't this God's inspired word? How can it possibly prove unfruitful? Well, its unfruitfulness isn't due to any, any uh, inadequacy on, on its part. It's not because it lacks great potential. The unfruitfulness came with the competition to other things in the space of my mind. So here's what I would say first. Please remember, I need not only study the word regularly, I need to give it enough emphasis to dominate the competing objects of attention in my mind. B. To produce biblical change, I must humbly and wholeheartedly agree with what the word says about my life. So, it it has to be more than information. I can't, I can't study this word the way I study European history. I have to study it in such a way, it's a different level of learning. It's not just a detached collecting of data. The Holy Spirit won't render the transforming power of the Word to the merely curious. So, so the power of the Word dries up to people who study it without that humble, repentant intention to agree with everything it says about my own heart, my own life. Maybe James deals with this best. In James 1... Verses 5 through 8. If you got a Bible, look up James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Well, that sounds simple enough. But, oh, wait a minute. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And then this explanation. When he says the person who asks has to ask in faith and not doubt, what does he mean by that? And verse 8 gives the explanation. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So this doubting, is not just a matter of not having perfect faith. None of us does. That's not what James is talking about. He, he deals with a really practical issue in that eighth verse. Someone needs wisdom, perhaps to face some major crisis in life. Well, he can't approach God with a double mind, verse 8. What does that mean? It means I can't approach God in in the Word or in my prayer life I can't approach God asking him for wisdom for this situation and then decide later on whether I'm going to take God's advice. That's double-minded. So when I'm asking God for wisdom, I've already made the commitment that he is right and I am wrong and whatever he says I will do. That's that's the opposite of double-mindedness. I'm committed to my request. I'm not trying to inhabit two worlds at once. Maybe, maybe just let me talk about that a little bit more. If you looked at James 1, 21 to 25, James talks now specifically about how to receive the Word. Remember I said, this second point is when you receive it, you have to agree with it. That, that's what we're studying now. Here's where James deals with that. James 1, 21 to 25, Therefore... Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Rampant wickedness is not quite the same as wickedness. Rampant wickedness would be the kind of wickedness that our culture now justifies. Okay? It's, it, it's encouraged wickedness. Promoted. Made to appear like the right thing to do. That's rampant wickedness. Okay. Put away filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive receive with meekness. I said humility and repentance. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, what does he mean, implanted? Well, but be doers of the word, 22. Not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Deceiving yourself in the sense that I can read this and think, there, I've done my duty, I must be turning into a godly person. I read my Bible. No. Not necessarily. Be doers of the word, 22, not hearers only deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at the natural face in the mirror. There's the study. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, Jesus said the truth will make you free. James calls it the law of liberty. And perseveres. Remember I said enough emphasis to be a counterweight to the other things that enter your mind. That person being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who does, he will be blessed in his doing. And the phrase that ought to jump out is that receive with meekness the implanted word. There's no lack of power in the word. It is effective. It is able to accomplish its purpose in my life, but there can't be arguing on my part. Here's the third thing to do, to receive maximum benefit from the Word, C. To produce biblical change, I must immediately apply the Word to all my activities. We actually studied this already in James 1, to 25, Where he says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, look, and at once forgets, forgetting, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, that's the second reference to forgetting, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So, it's like soap. Soap has the power to make you clean, but only when you use it. Just knowing about soap doesn't make you clean. And it's the same with the Word. It has the power to transform your life. But just knowing about it, even being able to quote it, doesn't change the life. It's the application. It's the using of the Word. But there's more here. When people fail to obey the Word of God, why do they usually fail? Well, James says in that text we study is not because they're bent on rebellion or they don't want to grow spiritually. That's not the problem. They don't consciously choose to rebel. What happens is they look at themselves in the Word and turn away from it too quickly before they apply it. They read it without applying it, and any truth that you just read and don't apply, you're going to forget. And that breeds spiritual neglect. Okay, we're almost done. We have to constantly fight against that kind of hearing in, in, our, in our church. Let's just talk about our church. Jesus, Jesus seemed to identify this as an ongoing spiritual battle, and he, and he tucked it right into the Great Commission. Look carefully at Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and then we're done. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice, it's not just teaching them. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded. People aren't disciples knowing Jesus' commandments. People aren't disciples reading Jesus' commandments. People are disciples observing all of his commandments. God's never going to grade me just on knowing. Knowledge is important. It's an important first step. But the Spirit only generates life and joy and hope and peace for those who, who humbly give time to the Word, study the Word, apply the Word, agree with the Word, and obey the Word. So, the first step in the process of biblical change is teaching. Profitable for teaching. Follow those simple steps, and I think you'll begin to see fruit, the seed, uh, Not just landing on your heart so you admire it, but growing in your heart so it starts to shape the affections and joys and delights of your heart. And that's where the growth is. Not just pursuing righteousness, that's important. You start to prefer it. There's the change. Let's pray. We do love your word. It and it alone is profitable for People like we. Let your word, let your word run through Cedarview Community Church in minds that are full of its truth, hearts that are repentantly in agreement with its truth, and desires that start to be molded and shaped by its truth. Fruit that grows in all of our lives so that Jesus is glorified. In your name we pray, amen, amen. Join us for our prayer time, church. God bless you. Thanks for studying with us.